We are going back into the book of Luke this morning. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 16. If you want to go grab your Bibles, uh, we're actually going to skip over uh, verses 16 through 18, as I've taught on both of those subjects in the past, uh, including that very intense verse of uh, verse 18. Uh, you can find that message on our website or in our app. Uh, it's in the, our uh, marriage series we did about a year and a half ago, uh, Happily Even After. Hey, speaking of intense and hard subjects, uh, Jesus is teaching once again today on the subject of hell. Uh, parents, uh, just a heads up, um, this message is probably fine uh, for most kids, but if you've never talked about this uh, subject before, uh, this may be a lot for some kids if they're hearing it for the first time, as we're going to kind of do a, a bit of a deep dive into this today. Uh, I've pointed this out oh, I don't know, maybe 10 times already through the book of Luke, and I'll probably point it out another 10 times as we go through the book of Luke. But Jesus very plainly and very often speaks of heaven and hell, the next life, uh, our continuation of life. Jesus speaks about sin, he speaks about judgment, he speaks about our eternal places of heaven and hell. You know, we've been reading through verse by verse to this book of Luke for, what, two years now, and I have yet to see this Jesus that most people in America tend to view in their minds that plays with puppies and only gives out free hugs, right? You just don't see that Jesus in the book of Luke. You know, I was reading uh, some Timothy Keller this week, who, by the way, was just diagnosed with cancer, so sad, pray, pray for him. Um, and he, he was saying, you know what, people say all the time nowadays, they say, I just can't believe in a God of love and also the doctrine, that's the teaching, of hell. And they say, I just don't think a smart religious person could believe in both of those things existing at the same time. And yet Keller says this, he says, but do you know who can believe in both of those things? Jesus. <laughs> he says, the smartest and most influential religious teacher in the world, even according to non-believers. Jesus. Jesus believed in both those things. He believed in the amazing love of God and in the doctrine of hell. And so if Jesus could see those two things as coexisting, perhaps we should at least consider it. Okay, let's jump into our passage and then we'll unpack it. Uh, we are Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19, and we're gonna go through the end of the chapter today. Here's what Jesus says. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, so he's in hell, and by the way, when it says the, the beggar goes to Abraham's side, it means he's in heaven. Abraham from the Old Testament is in heaven. And so it says, in Hades, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, 
Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets and the Bible, the Old Testament. Let, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, now it's worth pointing out that one of the most interesting things about this supposed parable is that it's the only parable where there is a proper name for someone. Someone gets a name, uh, Lazarus, the, the poor man. And every single one of Jesus's other parables, we just get titles, like we say the farmer or the rich man or the worker or the manager. Here we get a name, which has led some people to believe that perhaps this maybe isn't a parable and it's actually a real story. It's kind of hard to say. But another thing that's really interesting is the name, and maybe the meaning is wrapped up in the name, and that's why he has a name. The name Lazarus is significant. It means God is my help. God is my salvation. But the rich man, in contrast, he doesn't get a name. He's just called the rich man. And I think that the word is trying to show us, God's trying to show us that Lazarus' identity is found in trusting in God. But the rich man is finding just his identity in being rich. And that, I think, really brings us to our first application for the day. What I want to do today is I want to look at three ways that we avoid this doctrine of hell, this tough doctrine. By the way, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. Uh, this n might not even be a list of the three most common ways we avoid it or even the three most important ways of avoiding it. But we're studying this particular passage, and it's three ways out of this passage. Okay, so here's the first way that we avoid this doctrine of hell. And it's this. Number one, we are distracted by our pursuit of comfort. So like the rich man, who found his identity in being rich, so many of us, we live for comfort, not for eternal things. And that pursuit of comfort ought to be something that scares us awake when we read this passage. Now notice, this rich man, he had everything on earth, right? He had fine clothing, he lived in some sort of gated community or gated home, he had servants. We're told that he lived in luxury every day. But here's the thing. Uh, with the exception of the fact that we probably don't, none of us have servants, right? All of us probably live in more luxury than that rich man did 2,000 years ago. Now, this guy didn't even have a toilet, right? Let alone a, a fridge or a car or Netflix, right? We live in way more luxury than he did, and that ought to make you nervous. I think too many of us in modern-day America, we are because we haven't traveled anywhere outside of America or even outside of our own suburbs in some cases, we're numb to our wealth, right? Because unlike most of the rest of the world, you can just point to someone next door whose house is like a little bigger than yours or someone a few miles away, their car is a little nicer than yours. And so relatively, it doesn't feel like we're that wealthy, right? And so we rarely consider ourselves as wealthy and that's dangerous. Because the rich man, he enjoyed the comforts of his wealth so much so that apparently he rarely ever thought about spiritual things. And this is why Jesus teaches so often in the Gospels about the dangers of wealth. It's not that wealth is inherently bad. It's not. But if it's not handed well, it can be a dangerous distraction for your soul. And now that this man is in hell, 
he just is desiring so strongly that he would have lived his life differently, that he would have trusted in God for salvation. In fact, he's begging Abraham to send someone back to warn his brothers, which is kind of ironic, right? Because the rich man has now become the beggar. And again, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make some sort of dichotomy here that says that being rich means you're going to hell. That's certainly not biblically true at all. I'm just trying to point out that if you're chasing riches and comfort, you won't have any extra room in your life to be pursuing God, to be chasing after God. Right? That's often what an idol is. It's a replacement for God. And so this passage ought to cause us to ask, how much of my life is spent on seeking more comfort? And for many of you, I think if you took a really, really hard look at your life, comfort is the goal of your life. Right? You went to college or you went to graduate school. And for many of you, why? Like, what was behind that? Or you, you, you work really hard at your job so you can get promoted. Well, why? Or you save up and you save up. Why? For a lot of us, the deep down answer behind all of those questions is money. And it's even deeper than money, because yes, some people stop at, oh, that gives me security, that helps me feel safe or better. For a lot of us, we want money so we can have comfort, right? We think, well, if I could just make $50,000 a year, $70,000 a year, or $100,000 a year, then I could, well, then you could what? Well, then I could get a, a nicer house or a bigger house, or I could get a more modern-looking house. Well, or you think, next year, if I get a raise or we get more money from this, then I could get a boat or I could get a deck or I could get a new grill or I could get a nicer fridge or I could renovate my living room or I could get a better car or I could, right, and the list goes on. And if you got that, then what? What would you feel? We think, as soon as I could fix that in my house or get this thing or get this, then I would feel comfort, right? You wouldn't feel disappointed, you feel just at ease with what we have. You wouldn't have to feel inadequate anymore because of your small house or your old clunker of a car. You wouldn't have to sit in your ugly living room or whatever it is that we're just seeking to fix. And if you really think about it, it's quite disheartening how much effort we put into feeling comfortable. We work all day long for years to get to the next stage of Comfort. Many people literally go into debt. They spend money that they do not have so that they can feel comfortable. For what? To spend some short period of time on earth feeling comfort? But is that the point of your life? Is the point of your life, is the goal of your life, which you structure your time around, is it comfort on earth? No, comfort is not your goal. Being in a relationship with God and giving glory to God is your goal. If you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, then you won't feel any comfort for all of eternity. For some of us, there's another way that we avoid this doctrine of hell. And the second way from this passage is this. We think people need more signs. In other words, we feel like there should be more evidence before we would boldly talk about this doctrine of hell or the reality of hell. Do you ever feel this way? Like, like you, maybe you think, God, if heaven and hell are real, like, shouldn't it be more obvious to people? That's, that's a good question, right? The rich man felt this way once he was in hell. That's why he said, Abraham, Abraham, 
send someone back, send someone back from the dead to warn them. In other words, if, he's saying, if people had more evidence, more signs, then they would know that this is real and then they could uh, avoid it. But what does Abraham say? He doesn't say, oh, that's a really good idea. I think that would help. No, look at it, look at verse 29. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, the evidence from the word of God is enough. Of Romans 1, and the New Testament takes it a step further, but it basically says, just walk outside and look at creation. Right? Look at the forest and the oceans and the mountains and the stars and the universe. God is real, and the evidence is there. We don't need more signs. Even with more signs, our wicked and sinful hearts would just deny them anyway. As much as we would say, no, 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 I would believe if I had more signs. It's, just, it's not how our hearts work. And Abraham says that. So look at verse 31. It says, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, right, the word of God, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, what's really interesting about this story is there was another man who rose from the dead in the Bible. There's a couple people. And one of them, uh, interestingly enough, has the same name as the poor man in the story, Lazarus. Now, it is a different person. Uh, and this Lazarus was dead for four days. And then Jesus raises him from the dead. And then we're told in the Gospel of John that when the chief priests of the Jews find out that Lazarus is alive, that they all make plans to kill him, right? Not they make plans to go hear the evidence and the testimony to hear, well, what was heaven like? Or it's just they make plans to destroy the evidence. Right? This is the state of the sinful heart. The sinful heart will always cry for more evidence, but then deny it when it sees it. Right? I see this a lot. You know, God may completely transform an unbeliever spouse into a brand new person, right? Maybe their spouse gets saved and now they're just on fire, they're passionate for Jesus and they're just brimming with new love and patience and joy, all the fruit of the spirit, right? And the unbeliever says, it's just a phase. Or God may heal an unbeliever's family member of cancer, right? And the unbeliever can just say, I'm sure the doctor just had it wrong in the first chart. And really the deep irony about Abraham's statement of they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead is, of course, that Jesus himself would rise from the dead and many people would still not believe. They would just demand another sign. Oh, I've got a little bit more evidence than I would believe. Often what that is, it's just a way of us rationalizing why we don't actually deep down want to surrender to God. We say, well, I just need more evidence. And that's why Abraham just says, no, no, no. The word of God is enough. And God will give life, right, if it's his purposes. John chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And so boldly share the gospel. Don't avoid talking about heaven and hell and salvation. People don't need another sign first. God's word is powerful and active. People need to know that they need salvation. And if they don't have salvation, then they will be in hell. I mean, the American church has been terrified to talk about this for 50 years, and it's one of the reasons that we're declining quickly in this country. You want to know one thing that scares me almost more than anything else in this world? 
It's that someone would get someday to this awful place called hell, and they would think, oh, that David Sorn. I know that he knew about this place. I know that he knew about Jesus, but he never told me. May no one ever say that about you, ever. You know, Hudson Taylor, uh, it's one of my favorite biographies I ever read uh, by Roger Steer. He was a great 19th century missionary uh, to China. He, he once led a, a Buddhist leader to Christ in China, and this uh, Buddhist leader had been long just seeking truth everywhere. He was just trying to find truth. And so he studied Confucianism, he studied Buddhism, he studied Taoism, but there was just no rest for his soul until he found the gospel of Jesus. And then as he gets saved, he eagerly just starts telling all of the Buddhists he knows about Jesus. Well, one day, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, is talking to this new Christian, and the new Christian says, now, how long have the English known about Jesus? Did the gospel just recently reach England? And when he was told that the English had known about Jesus for centuries, he replied by saying this. He said, for hundreds of years, you have had these glad tidings and only now have come to preach it to us? And he says this, he says, my father sought after truth for more than 20 years and he died without finding it. Oh, why did you not come sooner? See, the problem with avoiding the topic of hell is that every time we avoid it, less people actually avoid hell. People need to hear the full truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth in love to save people from their sins and from hell. There's a third way that we avoid this doctrine of hell that God wants us to see in this particular passage. The third way is this, we minimize it. I'm just gonna push it down a little bit. Now think about it this way. If I just straight up asked you, uh, do you believe, if I'm assuming that you're a believer in Jesus, right? you're a Bible-believing Christian, uh, do you believe hell exists? And you would say, uh, yes, I do. I've, I've read the Bible, it's very clear, it's right there. And if I asked you, and who is in hell? Uh, you would say, well, it is those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They haven't become a follower of Jesus, right? And you may say, that's what I believe. But the reality is we don't live as if that is true. There's a disconnect because if we truly lived as if that was true, surely we would tell more people about Jesus, right? And then you may be thinking this right now. We say, oh, this is really difficult because it's like, I do believe that's true, but then why am I not living that way? Well, one of the ways that we get ourselves to sleep at night and that sort of disconnect is we minimize it. We minimize the doctrine of hell. And in all sorts of different ways, right? Um, some do that. They minimize hell by finding certain sort of fringe theologies that you can't find in Scripture, right? They say, well, I guess it's, it's probably not really that painful, or all that means is it's just a place without God. Or some will say it doesn't last forever. It's not eternal. Yeah, others minimize hell by just talking about it as a place for those who deserve to be there, right? And I'm different, right? And we forget that we all deserve to be there. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, uh, who just recently passed away and went to be with uh, Jesus uh, once quoted Robert Dale as saying this, he said, the only man I can ever listen to preaching about hell is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the amazing evangelist of the uh, 1800s, kind of Billy Graham of the 1800s. He said, Moody was amazing because I never heard him talk about hell without breaking down 
and weeping. Right? That's understanding it to the fullest extent, not just minimizing it and tucking it away, which is what most of us do. Right? We minimize it by just not letting our minds go there. We just try to kind of not think about it. I mean, most churches try very hard to not talk about it. Even when they give the gospel, they kind of just use different words. They don't have to save a word. Hell, and it's just mind-blowing because we've been studying the book of Luke for almost two years now, right? And it's like, I'm preaching on this like every three or four messages because Jesus talks about it so often. We cannot minimize the reality of this. Every time we avoid it, less people actually avoid hell in reality. We can't minimize this. And you can't minimize it even looking at the passage, right? The rich man, he's in agony. He's begging, will someone just bring some water to cool my tongue? We can't minimize it. There is, with false doctrine, there is no such thing as purgatory, right? There's no place that you go after death to be purified of your sins so that you eventually can cross into heaven. That's a false doctrine too, and it's a false doctrine really for two reasons. For one, Christian, Jesus' death for you on the cross is 100% sufficient. It purifies all all of you, not part of you. When the Bible teaches that Christ, God looks at you and sees Jesus's righteousness on you, he sees all of it, not half of his righteousness covering you. His death was sufficient, fully. And secondly, this passage right here, it teaches that a great chasm exists so that no one may ever cross over from hell to heaven or vice versa. You know, we're told that this man, even though he was a Jew, that that wasn't enough to save him. Right? It's our saving faith in Jesus Christ and his death that saves us. Right? So just because you go to church, that doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your parents go to church or are Christians, that doesn't mean that you're saved. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus who loves you so much, he's seen all of your sin, all of your sin, and he died on the cross in your place. And if you believe in him, you say, I believe that you died for me and I want to become a follower of yours, you can be saved. And you can be saved not only from your sin and have him come in your life, you can be saved from hell and spend eternity in heaven. And you can do that today. I encourage you to do that tonight. Go by your bed. You can do it right now if you want. Just get on a knee or two knees, kneel down and say, God, I believe in you and I want to follow you and invite him into your life. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that people would respond and they would accept you into your life. And Lord, I just thank you that you forgave us and that you love us. In your name we pray, amen.